Welcome to Pursuing Justice. I'm Harriet Handel. We have a special guest with us today, someone who has become a dear friend of mine. He is Seth Miller, Executive Director of the Innocence Project of Florida, which I mention frequently. They are located in Tallahassee, Florida. Way back in December of 2009, a picture in the Sarasota Herald Tribune caught my attention. A man named Jamie Bain walking out of prison with Seth right there by his side. Jamie had spent 35 years behind bars for a crime he did not commit. He went to prison at age 19 and now was 54. His story brought me to tears. I called Innocence Project of Florida and asked how I could help. Commuting to Tallahassee was out of the question because I lived in Sarasota then, a 14-hour round trip. But Seth offered two suggestions, raise money for the organization and raise awareness of wrongful conviction. I didn't know where to begin, but he promised I'd figure it out, and I did. Seth, you are the reason I have read countless books on the subject, watched so many documentaries and docu-series, created classes on wrongful conviction. I have so much admiration for how you spend your day, every day, fighting for justice for those who can't do it alone. Thank you for the gift of your precious time as my guest on this four-part series. Well, Harriet, I'm so happy to be here. And when I hear you say that, um, I, I realize that um, that in many respects you're a gift to me, and that um, I, you know, sometimes we toil away in this work and we forget that there are amazing people out in the world who not only support our work in every way imaginable, but are doing their own work uh, uh, to further the efforts to fight injustice. And I feel like you are the uh, the tip of the spear in that regard. And so. Um, you inspire me, and I'm, I'm so thrilled to be here today. Thank you. Thank you. All right. So let's begin for those maybe unfamiliar with um, what uh, Innocence Projects do and what uh, your particular project does. Tell us about your background, where you went to law school, and how you became involved with the Innocence Project of Florida. Yeah. So, you know, my story... Um, and getting involved with an innocence organization is is pretty unremarkable, actually. I mean, I'm someone who I went to college at Penn State University and I moved down to Florida to go to law school at the Florida State University College of Law um, without a real idea of what I wanted to do with my life. Much like many young people who go straight from college um, to law school, I knew that um, I was interested in being a lawyer, but I, I didn't have a good sense about you know, really what that meant or the or the responsibilities that go along with that. Um, and I figured I would, you know, just kind of figure it out as I went along. And when I was in January of my second year of law school, so this was January 2003, uh, I had found out that a gentleman named Barry Sheck was going to be visiting the law school um, there in Tallahassee to launch a new effort at that time called what would be called the Florida Innocence Initiative uh, because we had a crisis in Florida. Uh, Florida had a law that allowed for DNA testing in old cases, um, but it had a deadline on getting that testing. 
and that deadline was going to expire on September 30th, 2003. So in all these old cases where DNA testing might be able to prove innocence, the Florida Supreme Court and the Florida legislature and all their infinite wisdom put a deadline on proving that innocence. And so there was no organization in Florida uh, to you know, work on those cases, to find those cases, to get them filed, to get DNA testing moving in those cases. And it was only the Innocence Project in New York, which at that time was a much smaller organization, but the first Innocence uh, Project run by Barry Sheck and Peter Neufeld, who was who were collecting all of these letters from individuals in Florida and their family members saying, we need help, we need help. And so they took that information and they used that to help start our project. And I went to the rotunda in the law school, saw Barry Sheck give this talk and said, well, this is interesting. They seem like they need a lot of help. I think this is intriguing. It's something that I might want to get involved with. And I sought out the director at that time, Jenny Greenberg, and said, hey, how can I get involved with this? And that kind of set me off in the trajectory to uh, begin my work, even as a student at that time, uh, helping to write wrongful convictions. Tell us about your background, where you went to law school, and how you became involved with the Innocence Project of Florida. Yes, yeah, so Harry, you know, that story, my sort of genesis in this work is fairly unremarkable. Um, I went to Penn State University for college and came down to Florida to the Florida State University College of Law to go to law school, not really knowing what I wanted to do. Uh, not really understanding what it meant to be the lawyer, all the responsibilities uh, you know, to the public interest that go along with that. And it wasn't really until my second year of law school, it was January 2003, when this gentleman, um, I heard this gentleman, Barry Sheck, uh, from the Innocence Project in New York, was coming to the law school, and he was helping uh, to launch uh, what was then called the Florida Innocence Initiative, because there was a crisis in Florida at the time. And that crisis was largely because Florida had a, a law that did allow DNA testing uh, in old cases of people who were convicted to prove innocence. But the problem with the law is that it sunsetted, uh, it expired. Your ability to file for testing expired on September 30th, 2003. So the Innocence Project being really one of the few innocence organizations in the country and the fact that we didn't have one in Florida they had been collecting requests, pleas, from individuals and their family members seeking DNA testing, but there wasn't a project on the ground to you know, look at those cases and determine whether DNA testing would be good in those cases and, and help them file and get that testing. And now we're on this tough deadline that was only nine months away. And so um, I heard you know, Barry talk in the rotunda of the law school. And I thought to myself, you know, I don't really know what I want to do, but this is very intriguing. It's an opportunity to help individuals who are very vulnerable, uh, who need that uh, high quality legal assistance um, and, and really to, to do something that it maybe is most centrally important to the legal system, which is fix mistakes in the system that the criminal justice system was making and to give people new life, give people freedom. And so I, I went and sought out Jenny Greenberg, who is the director of this new Florida Innocence Initiative, asked her if I could be involved. And you know, we were off on, on our way at that point. So when did you step into the role of executive director? I guess after there was more of a formal creation of the Innocence Project of Florida. 
Yeah, and so, you know, from that point, I, I worked as a student um, and, you know, helping to uh, review and prepare motions for DNA testing in cases of like, we, I mean, I know we filed, I guess, 40 or 50 of them. And we had a number of exonerations uh, in those cases, some of our earliest exonerations. But then, like most students, I graduated and I went off and I did some other things. And it wasn't until 2006 that the Innocence Project of Florida um, was still the in Florida Innocence Initiative at that time. We got our first big grant to expand the staff. And Jenny Greenberg, the former director, called me up and said, Seth, I, I can hire a staff attorney. I'd love you to be our first staff attorney. And um, I went to my wife and said, hey, um, do you want to move back to Florida? And, you know, it was February in Washington, D.C. And, uh, you, you know, we were, you know, affected by the terrible winter. And we decided to um, to make our way back to Florida and, uh, you know, came back as a staff attorney in August 2006 and in November uh, 2007. Um, really, so that would be, you know, 15 years ago just about right now, um, I became the executive director. Okay. So who was the very first exoneree? Could you tell us about that particular case? Yeah, and so, um, and I, I wanna focus on DNA exonerations because Florida sure. has, um, since 1989, has had 83 individuals um, exonerated. Um, uh, but the you know the the first one that was a DNA exoneration that sort of was the impetus for our work and our project starting was um, uh, was frankly Smith, and so what's and really Jerry Frank Townsend as well. And these cases are are linked up; they're inextricably intertwined because both of them were convicted for crimes against young black women and young black girls in the late seventies uh, that sort of all happened in the same area of uh, Fort Lauderdale. Um, and uh, young black women, young black girls were being abducted and raped and some murdered. Um, and it seemed to be happening by a sim, you know, same person, except frankly, Smith was convicted of one of them based solely on an eyewitness identification. And this other gentleman, Jerry Frank Townsend, who was terribly mentally ill at a 50 IQ, he was uh, convicted of seven of these. Um, frankly, Smith got sent to death row. Jerry Frank Townsend, because he pled, um, got um, sent to uh, you know, general population, got life sentences. Um, there was a intrepid police detective named John Curcio in Fort Lauderdale who realized the similarities between these cases. And you know, frankly, Smith lawyers, because we were on death row, we had lawyers, they were trying to get DNA testing and the courts were saying, no, no, no. Prosecutors were saying, no, 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 you can't get DNA testing. But John Curcio on his own requisitioned the rape kit from the Frankly Smith case, requisitioned the, the rape kits from all the Jerry Frank Townsend cases and got them all DNA tested. And what he found that there was male DNA um, from the sperm in those rape kits that didn't match Frankly Smith, nor did they match Jerry Frank Townsend, but they matched one other person, um, Eddie Lee Mosley, who was a serial rapist murderer um, and was already in the state hosp mental hospital at that time. Um, and so what he figured out was that this whole time they had a serial rapist murderer on their hands and that they had wrongfully convicted these two men um, for uh, Eddie Lee Mosley's crimes. Now, for Jerry Frank Townsend, what is taught us is that 
the law enforcement in his cases used him because of his diminished mental capacity to um, close those cases because they knew he would falsely confess to things he didn't do. So that was a good lesson to us uh, to be able to say, look, false confessions do happen. Innocent people do uh, confess or plead to things that they didn't do. Um, so he got out, got a big settlement, and he is still alive today. Um, frankly, Smith, on the other hand, his DNA testing happened after he died because he died of cancer while on death row. So he would never got the benefit of knowing that he was exonerated and never got to see that freedom uh, because uh, he was exonerated posthumously. Um, but these cases outline the need for a post-conviction DNA statute. And when that was passed in 2001, that led to the creation of our project a few years later in 2003. And in a really for our first almost nine, 10 years in existence, we only did DNA testing cases. Oh, I don't think I knew that. That's interesting. When taking a case, you not only do you work pro bono, which means no cost to your clients, but the person you're working for must be patient. On average, how long does it take uh, to get an innocent person out of prison? And why does it take so long? It's a great question, Harriet, and um, there, there's no uh, one true answer to it because there's a lot of variables that impact how long it can take uh, to, you know, from when someone writes us to how long uh, or to when they get exonerated. Um, I think, you know, for our part, for the review that we do or intake and screening in our office, we have um, a well-functioning intake and screening system and a well-functioning uh, uh, process to take cases. And so uh, I think, you know, we can, we have a case that we identify that is a good case. Um, we can usually get the information we need, review it uh, within six to 12 months and decide whether we're going to take that case. Um, that said, uh, once we decide to take a case and file um, a, you know, a legal motion in order to get the process started to vindicate that person, you know, at that point, we're at the behest of the courts. And so different courts move cases along more quickly or less quickly. Um, sometimes we lose, often, a lot of times we lose in lower court and we have to take appeals and, and go through what might be a year or more of litigation to get the case back on track. Sometimes we lose there and have to go to federal court um, to get re you know, relief there. And so we've had cases like the one you mentioned, Jamie Bain, um, where from the time we identified his case to exoneration was only eight months. And that was remarkable. Um, and then we've had other cases where, you know, we're still working on the case more than a decade later. Um, and so... Uh, it really runs the gamut and there's a lot of things that go into it. But I, what I can say is that we are you know, very mindful uh, that our clients are in a compromised situation in prison. We're mindful that life goes on and that, you know, their family, they and their family members are only getting older and life doesn't stop for anyone. And so um, we're always moving at, at the quickest pace we can in order to identify cases of wrongful conviction and to uh, move to vindicate them. And so um, sometimes the, the delays are just out of our control. Right. And speaking of delays, I mean, that is always something you have to deal with. But then something came along that really, really was like a monkey wrench. And of course, that was the pandemic. 
And so I wanted to ask you what happened uh, to your work at that point? Did everything stop dead in his tracks or were you able to continue your work? It's another great question, Harry. What's so, so interesting about um, COVID is that I think that for many people, even people who pay attention to things going on in the world, it caught everyone a little bit by surprise. Like I remember uh, just a few days before we closed, watching, being at home and watching an NBA game and having them stop the, you know, the basketball game in the middle of the game because one player got diagnosed with um, COVID and basically we're suspending the season. And that was a, a jarring thing. But for me, um, I kind of was lucky that I have all, all these relationships with criminal defense lawyers in Italy. Um, it's, it's a long story, not worth telling here, but I, I have all these friends and, and they're actually in Northern Italy, in Milan, in Bergamo, where the center of the crisis of COVID in Italy was going on. It was all happening like three or four months before things really you know, hit, hit the fan here in the United States. So I had my lawyer friends in Italy you know, texting me and calling me and emailing me saying, Seth, like you have to start to prepare for this because once it gets to the United States, you're it's going to be like a war zone. So we in our office put in place a disaster plan for COVID in January wow. and um, and basically had all our employees create work from home plans so that we could initiate them right at the at the time that we decided. So in March 13th rolled around and we closed the office. Everyone you know, had their computers at home, their printers at home, all their supplies. Um, everything was just ready to go. And we just simply shifted to uh, 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 a remote model, but that we were able to continue working and we continued to work. We had tremendous success during a pandemic, but the courts were largely closed. So while the courts were open for business, they weren't open for hearings. They weren't open for in-court proceedings. And so we had a number of situations where we had things scheduled that we just weren't able to hold and our clients had to spend a year or more in prison until the courts reopened for in-person proceedings. And when they did, they were prioritizing, understandably, people who were, you know, hadn't had their trials yet um, because you know they're only accused of crimes. They haven't been convicted. So the people who were convicted but needed in-court proceedings, they got pushed to the back burner because they, they understandably were just not as a high priority as people who had been sitting without trial and in, in jail for a year or two. And so, um, so I think for our clients, that was really the, the frustration. Um, but we really kicked things into high gear. We understood, we didn't know what COVID was going to do to the prison population with people being locked up in there um, in an enclosed environment. We were pretty confident that they wouldn't um, be able to, they wouldn't provide them with the kind of medical care and prevention care that they needed. And so we really redoubled our efforts, try to move even more quickly uh, to get people out. And, you know, during that time, um, we had our, our greatest period of success in terms of getting innocent people out of prison, um, you know, with uh, since the beginning of the pandemic and between then and now, we, we got eight individuals out of prison and or exonerated um, and, um, yeah, that was a big deal. Really that, big that's deal. pretty amazing. And the other thing you didn't mention is that uh, all visits were suspended 
yeah. uh, in the prison. So I know you and, and some of your staff go into the prisons. You couldn't do that. So everything was done on the phone, I'm guessing, and letters. Yeah. It changed the way that we interacted with our clients. And for a lot of our clients, we didn't see them for a full two years. And um, it's frankly just not the way you want to um, have a, a lawyer-client relationship, a professional relationship with a client. Um, you know, we'd have to have phone calls with our clients and, and they might have COVID and you have to, you know, hear the labored breathing and it, it, it's just like horrific. And um, uh, we're very lucky that none of our clients um, succumb to, uh, you know, that issue and that, um, you know, they're all, all the ones who remain in prison, who are still working on behalf, who are, they're still here for us to try to get them out of prison. That's good. Well, we're closing in on our first uh, podcast in terms of time, but I wanted to just ask you quickly, as an executive director, you don't work alone, obviously. It's a team approach. Um, who else works with you on staff? And also, I know you're going to come back and talk to us again. So we have several more podcasts uh, with you as our guest. But what about uh, your, your staff, your colleagues? Yeah, so uh, from our legal staff, we have staff attorney Brandon Sheck, no relation to Barry. Um, uh, we have, who is a former intern at the Instance Project of Florida. Um, we have uh, a staff investigator, Amy Carr, who was previously employed at the Innocence Project of Florida. We have two intake staff, uh, Dr. Dina Thompson and Della Campbell, um, who help us you know, find, and, uh, find our cases. Um, we have uh, a social worker on our staff uh, to help our clients transition um, back into free society, Anthony Scott. Um, we have a development um, officer, um, Jessica Bivens. Um, and we have a, uh, a finance and human resources manager, really an operations manager for the office, um, Emily Thorson. And um, so that's if, and then me. And so I think that's eight of us. Um, but we're looking to expand so we can uh, have greater capacity to um, do our programmatic work to get innocent people out of prison. That's great. Um, and I, I guess we have time to just briefly touch on the fact that you were president of something called the Innocence Network, which is a worldwide consortium of innocence organizations. Um, and, and maybe what we can do is we'll start uh, talking about that next time, because that is just an incredible concept, the idea of a network of innocence uh, groups, thanks to Barry Sheck and Peter Neufeld. What a legacy they they have started. So I appreciate your being here today on Pursuing Justice, and um, I hope that our listeners will definitely tune in next time and next time uh, for the uh, succeeding podcast. Thank you, Seth, so much for being with us today. Thank you, Harriet. Thanks for listening to my podcast today. You've been listening to Pursuing Justice on Society Bites Radio, and I'm your host, Harriet.